Hey everybody, and welcome to the latest episode in the Vassals of Kingsgrave, Agatha Christie reread. And my name is Bina007, I'll be your host today, and I'm also joined by Abby. Hi, Abby. And by Xander. Hey, Xander, also Lord Baron. So we are going to take a break from our scheduled reread. So the last was the murder of Roger Ackroyd. And today's episode is going to be conducted in the manner of a volop, which is an occasional series that we do on Vassals of Kingsgrave in homage to the podcast The Dollop, <laughs> where um, two comedians discuss events from history and one tells the tale to the others. So that's what we're going to do today. Um, the events take place in 1926. So where you left us, dear listener, is at the end of the murder of Roger Ackroyd being published on June 26th to great controversy and acclaim, and Agatha Christie is in the prime of her life. But we're going to take it back to the start of her life and talk a little bit about what led to that moment and what happened immediately afterwards. So, Abby, before we even begin, is it is it not commonly understood that Agatha Christie is British? This blew my mind today when I read this. Board. I mean, it might be like, I never had to read any Agatha Christie for school, but I know that some of the people who were in different English literature classes did, so they probably went over who she was, but I just assumed she was American because if you don't tell me an author is not American my brain just usually assumes they're American (laughs) is a you know confirmation bias or whatever that's hilarious so my mind's not doubly blown that you you get to read her in schools like to me Agatha Christie was also something that you read kind of like underneath the school desk like when you're pretending to study so that's that's brilliant okay so Agatha Christie was actually born as Agatha Miller in 1890 in a little town called Ashfield in Torquay which is on the coast of England she was a girl who was very bright obviously but not formally educated educated by nannies and homeschooled she had a vivid imagination made up lots of stories and plays but did not like performing them in front of other people. So she has shyness and a morbid fear of self-revelation. Her father died when she was just 11 years old in 1901 and left the family in financial difficulties. So we're going to see a lot of people doing desperate stuff because of financial difficulty in these books. And we then fast forward to her coming out. Do you guys get the coming out concept from have you watched Downton Abbey and Pride and Jane Austen enough to get this whole thing about is this, is this like a presented? debut like your debut yeah exactly okay. yeah um and there's all sorts of controversy about where she should come out because obviously it's very expensive if you do it in London like your family have to throw, throw you lots of balls and parties so she she comes out overseas which is cheaper so this is now 1907 and she's 17. And the key, key thing to remember about Agatha Christie at 17, which is kind of hard to remember when you always think of her in those photos on the back of the books, is she's really pretty. She's tall, she's slim, she's blonde. Do you want to guess by the time she's 22 and meets her future husband, so she's been out five years, how many proposals and engagements do you think she has participated in? What's the over-under? How many proposals do you think she's had in the five years? Wild guess. Dozen. Nine. Not bad, though. Oh, I was close. I'm amazed. I I had not been proposed to nine times by the time I was 22. Do we know if that was like normal or like over or under or anything for the time period? Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? I was quite surprised that she was still unmarried at 22, having been out at 17. And you'd think, so not only nine proposals, but two engagements. 
And I think the latter is probably more unusual because wouldn't you be at risk of being seen as flighty or flirty or I don't know? Yeah, no, the, definitely the two engagements by 22 is definitely surprising. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it kind of, when you read her early novels and if you listen to the mini pods, Abby, all these like bright young women who are very adventurous, I think it just tells you something about her character that she had all of these suitable proposals and still decided she didn't want to settle down into marriage, which I think in those days would have been quite something. Um, so I think, you know, extrapolating wildly from limited data. So at 22, which is 1912, she goes to a dance, which is where you meet eligible young men. And her mum is very keen for her to marry someone from a good middle class family like her, and preferably someone with a good job and good finances, because they do not have good finances. And some of her previous engagements have been to just that sort of man who she has rejected. So um, being a young woman, um, as we often do, she is attracted at the age of 22 to Archie Christie, who is deeply good looking, deeply glamorous is a member of the newly formed Royal Flying Corps. So this is when planes are new and exciting. And if you think Lord Flashheart in Blackadder series four, um, he's everything that all of these boring county middle-class men are not. Um, so there you go. <laughs> That's who she decides to marry. And the mum is not happy. Um, remind you of anyone? Dashing, gorgeous, not too steadfast maybe um yeah anyway so basically she becomes she gets married basically she wants to get married in 1912 they have no money both sets of parents make well both mothers make them wait and then finally you get to 1914 world war one breaks out and he obviously has to go off and fight so they get married at christmas in 1914 at the age of 24 but really they don't see each other for four years because the war's going on so from the age of 22 to 26 she's married but doesn't really see her husband um and i was kind of thinking to myself how much time had they actually spent together you know i mean i'm assuming not much so kind of reminds me of my they... grandparents. Oh. oh, really? Is that what their courtship was like? Uh, a little bit, because um, he was in World War II, but they essentially married, you know, right before he left, and then, you know, they didn't see each other for years. They just wrote each other letters. I wonder what it was like for them. Like when he comes back, is that the person you remember and fell in love with? And obviously, you've both changed. I mean, regardless of the war, I changed so much from the age of like twenty through twenty late twenties. Just how long were they engaged for then? Several years, right? Two years. Two years. Yeah, that seems really long for the time period. <laughs> well, I think the problem is, is that the mothers just didn't approve. Like her mum felt that he didn't have any prospects like he just wasn't financially stable because these airplanes these newfangled things it's not like you've married a naval officer you're marrying someone in this very new thing and he has no finances um, it's just such a whole know. other world like this whole <laughs> like british like because <laughs> they're they're not like the aristocracy right but there's this this some some type of british aristo culture thing that just in the u.s during this time period i feel like did not did not exist in the same way and so this is it's just like so wild for me to be like oh the the two mothers didn't approve because of xyz and it's just it's very fascinating <laughs> well i mean it's very important to emphasize they weren't aristos they were just middle class people so this is obviously how involved parents got at that time um but what i find even more amazing is the obedience of the children i mean she's 22 when she meets him She's been of age for four years. She could easily have just gone and married him, right? Um, and I often feel like if they'd have just gone and had a bunch of sex, because they both obviously found each other deeply sexually attractive. 
if they just got it out of their system and gone on with their lives, they probably wouldn't have been quite so miserable. Um, that's true. That's but, true. Yeah. Those uh, Victorian values, man. Yeah, and it's important to think, isn't it, with Agatha Christie, that she is someone who was born in that Victorian era, that although she lived through the 20th century, she, she carries some of those old-fashioned values in her, as much as the love of the modern stuff as well. Anyway, I think very strongly that Archibald Christie um, and his physical attractiveness is reflected in people like Ralph Payton and Anthony Cage, the man in the brown suit. Um, she always has these really dashing, often military men in her books, um, and she definitely values people being good-looking. Anyways, they get married on Christmas Eve 1940, which actually sounds, you know, quite romantic. She becomes a nurse, he goes off and fights, and then they are reunited after the war. And she continues working. She kind of has to because they don't have any money. Like all the men being demobilized, it's not like there's loads of amazing jobs around. Her sister suggests she writes a novel partly to see if she can um, and partly to help them, you know, make some money. And he really resents her working. And I was just like, oh God, here we go. Um, this is not going to go well. So in 1919, she's 29. So she's not a young chick anymore. She has her first child, which I kind of feel would have been old for that time. But the war, I guess, intervenes. Um, and her daughter's called Rosalind, named after Shakespeare. Okay, this is going to blow y'all's mind. He was reluctant for her to get pregnant and was worried she would lose her figure. <laughs> And then when the baby's born, she actually feels jealous of her husband's relationship with her child and kind of feels locked out of it. And later, when she wants to have another child, he prevents her from doing so. Like, I don't know. Does that is that more common than I know? That just all seems very, very odd. Yeah, I'm wondering what the the post-pregnancy that relationship has to do with maybe like a postpartum. This might be like me thinking that people like prior like 1950 literally lived in like the medieval era. But like, so were they just like not having sex? Like, what were they doing <laughs> that he wouldn't let her have another baby? Oh, no, I think I think there was sort of primitive contraception of a sort. Right. I mean, there were like primitive condoms and stuff. And Mary Stokes was coming. You know, uh, this is the era when women are being first um, given the tools to take control of their their sort of sex life I mean I think we're given to we're given to understand they do have an active sex life but it is clear that he liked her for her looks she liked him for his looks and the whole pregnancy thing got in the way so they have Rosalind Archie resigns his commission in the armed forces and gets a job in the city so in finance we fast forward to 1922. So she's now sort of 32, 33 years of age. Um, this blows my mind. So, but apparently it was super common in those days. So they get a job offer from an old school teacher of Archie's called Major Belcher. <laughs> he now works for the British Council and offers them an all expenses paid round the world tour with him to promote work done by the British Council. But they have to leave the child at home with the nanny. So they leave the child at home with the nanny for a year and just have an amazing round the world trip a whole year a whole year wow and she's like what three she's yeah, the baby's i guess yeah two two or three years old yeah, this she is similar to the it. queen and prince philip <laughs> yeah the queen and prince philip going to australia when prince charles and anne were really little right i mean i think maybe this was more common in the days of the empire um you know after all like that's how boarding school started right little, little kids at the age of three and seven being sent to school for a term because the parents are in africa or india in, in the colonies but yeah, yeah, I feel like, I mean, I don't know much about the, you know, like their position in society, but that seems pretty normal. Like, I mean, you said they have a nanny. So just in, in my brain, you know, it's a uh, nanny watches kids, maybe once a week, kids are presented to the parents be like, 
they're uh looks healthy looks good manners see ya in a week you know so i i don't know also kids three i don't know maybe this is callous of me she's not gonna remember that they're gone for a year yeah so apparently when they got back and she just like steadfastly refused to go to the mum and didn't recognize that agatha christie was a little bit upset and i'm like did you expect i mean oh and it is interesting when you read her fiction very very few of the characters yeah mothers young children don't really feature that heavily it's it just feels like motherhood isn't a thing that necessarily is that fascinating for her. Whereas marriage, successful marriage and successful um, sexual relationships between men and women are. Um, so I do I do in my head wonder a little bit whether Agatha Christie really wanted kids at all. And that's maybe why she was putting off marriage and all those engagements. Um, anyway, on this, on this tour, they have an amazing time. They go around the world, they go to South Africa, um, which really impresses her and shows up in lots of her novels. There are pictures of her surfing in Hawaii. <laughs> so they have a whale of a time and really see the world and come back. And I think that was definitely the high point of their marriage. And you enter into the high point of her financial coming of age, 1923 to 1926. So um, he gets another job in the city. Uh, it's a good job. So they move out from London to Sunningdale which is a kind of suburban place west of London. And they buy a country house, which they call Styles after the mysterious affair at Styles. Um, and he loves it. He thrives. He's playing golf every weekend and tennis. And he's got all of his golfing buddies. And she is just dying inside. She just finds it deathly dull. And I think that's when the marriage drifts apart. So um, she then thinks, OK, well, I'll have a second child. He says no. Um, he, she does buy a car with the serialization money that she gets from from her books and he teaches her to drive um in retrospect i wonder if he's like just giving her space and freedom anyway this is now leading us to 1926 we have the publication of the murder of roger Ackroyd. she's financially independent she's famous she's 36 she is worried about losing her figure um if you read agatha christie she loves her creamy cakes she loves her good food she's getting older and archie is having an affair at the golf club <laughs> Um, with a woman so yeah he tells her that he wants a divorce this by the way comes on the back of a few months where she's also lost her mother and she was very very close to her mother um she feels distanced from her child which i wonder if is maybe like a delayed postpartum and he wants a divorce and she is 36 kind of what she would have perceived as middle-aged and really really unhappy like so depressed that she can't write she forgets to eat she can't sleep um just really in a horrible horrible place so thoughts and feelings so far on mr archie christie in fairness we don't have his side of the story right so i don't know yeah i mean he seems kind of i don't want to say he seems like a dick but like he seems kind of just more he doesn't really have it's more about the relationship is not about them it's about him if that makes sense do you know what i mean but I wonder if how far that would have just been normal for guys at the time. Like maybe he would see her at fault because he isn't it normal to sort of settle down, have kids, move to the country, suburbs, you know, and she's the one who wants to be in London and writing and doing all this roguish stuff. So Yeah, but he's the one having the affair. I, <laughs> I agree. I agree. <laughs> nobody oh, you know, no, what do you nobody think, uh, Xander? Yeah. Um typical men. <laughs> um but also just it it is interesting that she is a very much um a city kid because i'd feel the same way as her moving out to the country i can i couldn't handle that quiet life 
Well, I think it's kind of like it's almost like the opposite that she she grew up in proper countries like sea seacoast country, and she loves the kind of the life of of the writing and the sort of the being active. So she, I think she could either have handled proper country or London, but the kind of suburban, neither here nor there, like you know. Com- I mean, I kind of live in it now. I mean, it's stockbroker belts, we would call Sunningdale, you know, just houses that look identical, people that are identical. For somebody who wants to travel the world and see new people, I think it, it was just deathly for her. Um, anyway, so in the summer of 26, she and her daughter go to Torquay to sort out her mother's things, which must, that's really traumatic, right? A parent dies and you have to go to their house and kind of like figure out what you're going to keep, what you're going to get rid of. Archie makes a lot of excuses not to join because he's uh, tapping that ass. August 5th is Rosalind's birthday. So finally, Archie says, okay, I'll come down to Torquay for the birthday. And that is the moment he chooses to ask his wife for a divorce, which is classy. She is shocked and she opposes it very strongly. I think he just thought she'd be like, all right, have your divorce, go off and marry your new woman. She she opposes on two grounds. Firstly, religious. She is quite religious, like Church of England, Anglican religious. And after her divorce, she stops taking communion. Like she takes she takes it that seriously, which I don't know if I was surprised at that. I think I'm surprised at that. But maybe that was typical of the time. I so think she doesn't want to divorce him for religious reasons. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Sorry, what is and maybe what is it's surprising given communion? the books. So according to, I mean, certainly I'm Catholic. So in the Catholic Church, if you're divorced because they don't believe in divorce, they then you can't, if you go to mass you and you don't confess that you're, that sin, you can't take the communion wafer. Like you're, yeah. And I think it's the same in the Anglican Church, which is why it was so controversial when Prince Charles wanted to, to divorce and then marry Camilla, because he then becomes head of the Anglican Church. And how can he be divorced and head of the Anglican Church, right? So being okay. in communion literally means, are you part of the community of the worshipping faith? So for someone who truly believes and is religious and believes they're part of the church to be told you are excommunicated, you're excommunicated, you're out of the community. So if you want to turn up to the religious service, by all means, turn up, we can't stop you. But do not come up to the altar and take the, the wafer, take the bread and the wine as if you're part of this community. I think, I mean, it's quite harsh, isn't it? Um, I see. Yeah. And she wants to fight for her daughter's interests, right? She wants her daughter to be financially supported and to have a father. And if he goes off and has another family, then Rosalind becomes kind of like second class, I guess. So he pressures her all autumn to give, all fall to give um, him a divorce. She can't eat. She can't sleep. She forgets her name when signing checks. She's tortured by earache and neuralgia. So she's kind of having a a physical and nervous breakdown, it feels like to me. Well, it's hard to kind of, you know, reading people's diaries back and whatnot. Apparently, I've never read the novels that she wrote under the name Mary Westmacott. So apart from all her murder mysteries and spy thrillers, she writes a series of novels that are more like classic fiction dramas. And there's one she writes called Unfinished Portrait, which is um, very semi-autobiographical. So if you want to read how she felt, then maybe have a look at that one. So we now fast forward to Friday, December 3rd, and her state of mind is obviously very distressed. Um, It's a Friday. Her husband has gone away with his mistress to stay with some friends in Surrey, um, which is maybe like a 45 minute drive in modern times from where they live in Sunningdale. Quite near me, actually, where I live. According to the maid, they have a massive argument that evening or that afternoon. Agatha Christie then goes to see her mother-in-law. According to the mother-in-law, she talks in trivialities, but she isn't wearing her wedding ring. 
Agatha Christie's husband then goes off with his mistress for the weekend. Agatha goes home, dines alone, tells the servant she's going out for a drive, leaves behind a letter for her secretary slash governess slash best friend, Carlo Fisher, and maybe leaves a letter for her husband, we don't know. She drives off. We think maybe she was going to see or confront the husband and the mistress because later her car is found abandoned by the road. Is it an accident? Is it accident? Is it deliberately crashed in, in Godalming, which is quite near where um, the husband and the mistress were staying? And it contains a hastily packed suitcase, a coat, and no Agatha initial thoughts. I mean, you guys know she didn't commit suicide, right? Because she went on to write a whole bunch of novels, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it just seems yeah. like she had a nervous breakdown. It, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do wonder whether it was an accident or whether she deliberately crashed it, though. Um, anyway, so potentially if it was an accident, she was concussed. The next morning, um, the car is found abandoned, uh, the Saturday morning. The, I don't know, have you guys ever had a gin called Silent Pool Gin? Kind of like a hipster brand here. There's a silent pool in Surrey, you know where this happens, and and that's that that's the pool, the lake that the police drag to try and find her body because they think she's dead. And interestingly, Dorothy L. Sayers is one of the volunteers who who combs the countryside looking for her. The assumption is that she's distressed and that she's committed suicide. The Surrey and Berkshire police are involved. There's no suicide note or body, so then massive press. Um, interest and there is a police hunt nationally and I said on the Roger Ackroyd podcast that this would have been like George R. R. Martin disappearing at the height just after the Red Wedding episode and so everyone in the media is trying to find him and obviously it's hugely embarrassing for Archie because the press are all over the fact that he's an adulterer that he was away from his wife that he was pressuring her for a divorce so he is painted to be the villain and he tells the press on Saturday that he thinks it's a hoax and that she has done this to embarrass him. I mean, I don't, I, I it sounds like she had a nervous breakdown, <laughs> honestly. I think it probably says more about Archie that he thinks it's a hoax. Like it's so self-involved. Like he doesn't take seriously what she's been going through. So it's like, oh, she's just a, a murder writer. He's just making shit up as per usual. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree oh. that the the husband is being a real dick <laughs> and kind of making it about him. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it. I do think that it has to do with him, but not like an attention thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so Zander, what's your current feeling about Archie and Agatha and Archie tapping that ass? He, yeah, he just kind of does just sound like an ass, you know, like it, it, his reaction almost sounds more like I can't even have a nice weekend with my mistress. I got to deal with this now. I think that's very much his reaction. I think he just comes across as quite self-involved. I am very conscious that all of this is from her perspective. We have her notebooks, recollections of her family. But yeah, um, he does not come across as particularly empathetic or like, oh, no, I'm so sorry. You know, this was awful. I should never I would never have put so much pressure on her if I realized this is how close she was to suicide. Like none of that. Anyway, so massive national police hunt. We're now on Saturday. In retrospect, this is what we know. Somehow, maybe heavily concussed, or if you're more cynical, maybe planning a hoax, Agatha Christie gets the three miles to Guildford Station on foot in just a skirt and a cardigan with no suitcase, no coat in the middle of winter. Um, she gets on the milk train, so the first early morning train to London. 
she turns up at Waterloo Station. This is bizarre to me because this is the exact train line that I get to, I get on it if I go to work so I can imagine it very specifically. Later under hypnosis, she will remember that she had blood on her face and was wearing only a dress and cardigan, but no one at the Waterloo Station train buffet seemed to notice it. <laughs> so London, like whatever, um, woman wandering around with blood on her face. But she must have a lot of money on her because in London, she purchases a new suitcase a new coat, a very expensive bit of lingerie, and then takes the Pullman train all the way north in England to Harrogate in Yorkshire. So maybe three or four hours north out of London. Um, again, what are you thinking, guys? Does this sound deliberate? Does this sound like someone who planned it? I mean, those are high-end purchases, and she must have had hundreds of pounds in cash on that. I mean, you haven't mentioned her having any... Um male friends who she may be in contact with but if i'm going off of my she is having a like psychotic nervous break she, i mean it seems like you know she's trying to leave town start a start a new life maybe uh meet somebody <laughs> but just the the lingerie is uh i mean unless like lingerie is just you know that was just what everybody wore i don't know but uh that seems uh interesting well, I wonder if she wasn't trying to meet someone new, but to get her husband back. I think maybe she thought he might find her, realise how much he missed her. She goes, so this is the hotel she goes to, the Harrogate Hydropathic Hotel, which is a famous spa to lose weight. So it has all the latest in equipment. And if you read about this, it just sounds so gonzo because this is the 1920s, right? So people have just discovered electricity and how cool it is. So you can go have all sorts of like, you know, electrocurrent massage treatments that will hopefully help you shift those middle-aged pounds. So I think it's I, I, it's a huge leap. We don't know. Um, but the, the, the insofar as she was thinking clearly, I think there was something about it was preying on her mind that he'd left her. She was no longer attractive. She needed to somehow make herself attractive. But if you want to take the kind of cynical approach that he, she was just trying to embarrass him, guess the name at which she registered at the hotel. When you register at a hotel, you have to give a name. She registered under the name of his mistress. Ooh. Okay, that does change. That changes things because I was like, "There's no way that she wanted to embarrass him." But the, that 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 does lead to some questions. Yeah, she says unless it's like Teresa. Yeah, unless that's the only name she could think of. You know, maybe maybe subconsciously, like she can think of no female name but that name. I don't know, but it does guarantee that once the press get hold of her, that even the mistress is now publicly known. I mean, it, this really is like everyone will know the name of Camilla Parker Bowles and Prince Charles. I mean, it's total humiliation. Um, so yeah, Zanza, where are you at? Do you think this is still a psychotic break, or do you think this is now becoming a mix of that plus a deliberate humiliation of husband? Um. So I was thinking it kind of sounded like she was like trying to get him back in a way or trying to figure out a way to win him back. Um, but now mm. it does sound kind of petty and I'm kind of here for that. <laughs> you know, just an yeah, absolute exactly. scandal I... and I love it. <laughs> yeah, like screw you. You thought you were going to just slip away with a nice neat orderly divorce. Well, no, Sunny Jim, no. Anyway, so over the next 11 days, uh, Agatha Christie apparently has an absolute whale of a time. She goes shopping, she has breakfast in bed, she plays bridge and card games in the evening with the fellow hotel guests. Um, so she's socialising, she's not hiding away in her room. She has the hydropathic treatments, 
Um, so she's obviously brought a fair amount of money. I mean, this is like one of the most expensive hotels in England. She's having an absolute whale of a time. She's not really attempting, apart from the, the different name, to hide who, her, the fact that she's there. Um, and meanwhile, her, her, you know, her picture, and this is all front page news. It's hilarious. Um, 11 days later, the hotel staff recognised her finally. And her husband, Archie Christie, is called up to Harrogate to identify her. Um, and on condition of release, she has to have a formal interview with a psychologist. And the doctors claim that she had amnesia. And the press are absolutely convinced it's a hoax, maybe because of what Archie said on that first day that he thought it was a hoax. And the fact that they've just found her apparently just having a gay old time in Harrogate, just shopping and eating cream cakes. And the press really turns on her for wasting police time and wasting the public's um, kind of sympathy and empathy. So she she retains after this event a real hatred for the media because they really savaged her. Um, so the, the kind of the prevailing theory at, at the time is, hey, you know how she pulled the wool over our eyes in the murder of Roger Ackroyd and, and kind of like bent the rules with that trick ending? She, she's done it again, but she's just done it in real life. Um, yeah. Thoughts and feelings? Well, now it sounds like she was concussed. Right? From the car accident. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, I don't know enough about psychology to be like, this was a thing, but I just, anything that a doctor says pre, like, honestly, 1990, I'm like, like a psychologist says, I'm like, mm, I'm going to take that with a grain of salt because I, nobody knows what they're <laughs> talking about. But I also don't really think that it was a hoax. Like, it just seems such an odd thing to be like, this. I, I just, it, I don't know. I can't, I can't, I mean, I'm not Agatha Christie. I don't know anybody that's ever done something like this, but I just could not imagine a sane and rational person, even if they are really mad at their husband for cheating on them and pressuring. I just could not imagine someone going to this effort <laughs> to pretend to be missing. I, I it's, It seems like there was something going on with maybe a concussion or a psychotic break or something. But I, I just, in my heart of hearts, cannot imagine that this was an elaborate plot. I completely agree with both of you. And, um, you know, I kind of believe she was potentially in some kind of suicidal depression when she went to see, confront Archie. You know, she had been depressed all year. We have her notebooks. She, she wrote notebooks all through her life. Um, and she was really struggling. You can see the pain in writing The Mystery of the Blue Train, which is one that will come out later. Um, there, is an, there is an idea posited that she maybe had considered suicide. And if she had committed suicide, then Archie and, and his mistress would have adopted Rosalind probably. But then she's religious, so would she have committed suicide? Probably not. Um, the letter that she wrote to Carlo, her sort of friend, come housekeeper, come nanny, was interpreted by the police as a suicide note. We have never seen it. We probably shouldn't see it. It's a very private thing. Carlo then, when Rosalind was an adult, gave it to Rosalind, the daughter. Rosalind showed it to the official publisher, um, biographer Janet Morgan. But Janet Morgan, when she wrote the um, sort of officially sanctioned biography, did not publish it either. So we don't know what was in the letter. But um, Janet Morgan, having read that letter in all of Agatha Christie's notebooks and diaries, thinks that she was in what is technically called a hysterical fugue, like a fugue state, that she would have looked like she was competently going out and about doing her things like shopping or playing bridge or whatever, but that she was in some kind of weird amnesiac fugue state um, just caused by radical levels of stress. Um, interestingly, there is the third letter. So there's the one to Archie, which we don't know what's in it. There's the one to Carlo. The next day, she does also post a letter to Archie's brother, her brother-in-law, who reads it and then loses it. So we don't know what's in that one. 
Um, so yeah, but the brother-in-law will come in later. So she always claimed, Agatha Christie always claimed it was amnesia and that she still, to the rest of her dying days, did not remember what had happened. She never referred to it in any interviews. She never wrote about it. Um, she wrote an autobiography to be published after her death, but didn't refer to it at all. Um, and interestingly, for those of you who know about dictaphones from the murder of Roger Ackroyd, she wrote a lot of her autobiography because she was much older than on a dictaphone. And apparently the bit where she talks about 1926 is, is really faint, like you can barely hear her voice. Because regardless of this episode, it was such a traumatic year with the death of her mother and the divorce. It's a real kind of low point. Um, and what's even more fascinating, I think, is that um, her friends and family did not speak of it. Like none of them ever gave interviews about it. So it was known that you shouldn't talk about it. And that um, none of the police records survived. They were, they were destroyed during the war. So that is all we're ever going to know. <laughs> about any of this um so that them's the facts boys and girls what's your is your verdict still so some kind of hysterical view state i guess i don't know as far as we know yeah i'm hesitant to use the word hysterical because that's you know the whole victorian era that was just you know we don't understand that women have emotions we're just going to call them hysterical yeah yeah but um i will say like it does seem like she had some something going on in her brain whether it be a concussion or something and like like me when i get blackout drunk and somebody tells me about what happened i'm like that didn't happen and we're never going to talk about it again and i feel like that was you know something happened people are trying to tell her what happened and she's like no no, i don't want to hear it it didn't happen we're not talking about it that's kind of (laughs) my impression yeah I, i think she was just mortified and i think she was mortified for the publicity even to the mistress and husband and herself and just wished it had never happened and just wished it away and had kind of the power to kind of wish it away um yeah it's a weird one though it really is a weird one and to this day it puzzles people and it's a bit you know like all these mysteries people try and solve and it's like you're not going to solve it because they just you just have to there's not enough evidence really but you will see again and again in Agatha Christie's fiction I think up to this point you always see the handsome Archie Christie types and the feckless younger brother type or elder brother Monty types after this you see a lot of characters whereby a woman is being cheated upon by a guy and another woman. And you will see murderers who are acting in cahoots against an innocent wife. So she does, she kind of does kind of like speak to this trauma again and again, which is, I think, very sad. And maybe that's the way she had to cope with it, you know, just to write through it in a way. Um, I just find it really sad that at the moment of her greatest kind of professional fame, all this awfulness was just going on. It just breaks my heart. Um, any thoughts on the episode before I just tell you what happened afterwards? Oh, I, yeah, I was just going to ask when she ended up actually getting divorced from her husband or if they ever did. But I believe they did, right? Yeah. So what happened was this. So this was, uh, he'd asked for the divorce August 26. This happened, she went missing on the 5th of December. Um, by April the 28th, um, I think when she got back, she, that's when the penny dropped and her friends and family were telling her, look, you can't oppose this divorce. He does not love you. This is making you ill. You just need to move forward. So on April the 28th, 2027, she got her degree, decree nice eyesight. And then after a while, you then get your decree absolute. So the divorce happened pretty much when she got back. Um, it left her financially in dire straits. He went off and married the mistress and stayed married to her. So he was faithful after that. They didn't have any other kids. Apparently lived a very happy life. She was just in dire straits financially. So she quickly publishes a couple of books, in fact, four books. 
books, which people don't think are very good, but she just needed to write and get money. And obviously on the back of Murder of Roger Ackroyd, and then on the back of this, she is now internationally super notorious and the books already sell and, and she needs that. So she quickly brings out a book called The Big Four, which we'll be discussing on the next mini pod. She calls it in later years, quote unquote, that rotten book. It's the compendium of previously published short stories that actually her brother-in-law, so Archie's brother, had helped to sort of fashion into a long form book um, just so she could get something out. She finally finished The Mystery of the Blue Train, which I quite love. It's a Poirot mystery, but a lot of people don't like it as much. And then two kind of um, action adventures. So a Tommy and Tuppence novel called Partners in Crime and the Several Seven Dials Mystery. So the next four books, we, we won't cover in the big rereads, but feel free to jump on mini pods about them because they're, they're seen as books she wrote under pressure just to keep the money coming in. And, you know, she did. So she was financially successful. She could send her daughter to a private school. She bought a small house in Chelsea, so a fashionable part of West London. She could have afford to keep Carlo, her sort of secretary, friend, nursery maid on. You know, she, she did it. So by the time she hits 40 in 1930, she is a successful independent woman who's raising her child and is doing what very few women did in that era. So good for Agatha. And there we shall leave her. Um, what's any other questions on how it all plays out? So does she mend her relationship with her daughter then? Or is it still kind of strained for the rest of their lives? I think they have. A, I mean, we can get into this as we move through the timeline with the books. But mm. I think they have a quite fascinating relationship. They're, they're probably people who got, got on better as they were older. I, I wonder mm-hmm. if Agatha was one of those people who doesn't get on well with little kids. I actually wonder if I'm a little bit in that category. I like kids when they get <laughs> about nine and they have shit to say. <laughs> I think she's probably the same way. And yes, yeah. they got on incredibly well. She was an amazing grandma. Um, and obviously Rosalind was a, a great keeper of the estate. And now the grand, the grandson does it in turn. So they were very much on good terms. And I think as she got older, Rosalind realised just what her mum had been put through. Having, you know, Rosalind, having read the book, the, the letter that um, her mum had written to Carlo when she left. I mean, that probably gives you an image of just how much distress she was going through. Um, but you know Rosalind was very different she got married had kids had a very the Sunningdale life probably would have suited Rosalind very well but it just didn't suit suit Agatha right maybe we can wrap it up so weirdly at the end of the mini pods and the end of the main episode I talk about have there been any adaptations of the novel that we've been reading and what's really bizarre about this period in Agatha Christie's life is there have been people who've tried to write novelizations of what was going on and put themselves in Agatha Christie's shoes which I know I've just done I find it a bit distasteful though because anyway people have done it um there is a book written by Kathleen Tynan that became a film in 1979 a feature-length film directed by Michael Apted um starring Dustin Hoffman as an American journalist who is an admirer of Agatha Christie's and finds her in Harrogate Agatha Christie is played by Vanessa Redgrave and Archie Christie I think this is perfect casting is played by a very handsome Timothy Dalton who'd become James Bond <laughs> so if you want to see the romantic version of uh, Agatha Christie having an affair with an American journalist in Harrogate then go and watch that film you can what you can rent it on YouTube for not much money and watch it and um, I don't think it bears any relationship to the truth but it is quite fun to watch the estate of Agatha Christie opposed it um, and yeah it's I don't think it bears much relationship to the truth, but the nursery Redgrave is always great. But it shows you there were lots of like TV little dramas as well. There was one quite recently 
which had Agatha Christie going missing, ending up in a different country house and solving a murder randomly and then leaving. So people are fascinated by this period of her life, um, even people who weren't big Agatha Christie fans. So yeah, that's all I really wanted to say about it. But I just thought it would give you some context as you kind of, if you do read the next couple of books of why they're maybe hastily written and a bit shit. <laughs> and also why there's, you know, the theme of adultery and affairs and treachery is so big in her novels going forward. I will say it's it's much like her writing. She is a much more modern woman than I would have realized, you know, without doing these deeper dives. Yeah, I think there's nothing that can shock her because she's seen everything, right? I think people think of her as this old woolly woman like Miss Marple, you know, this virginal auntie who just knits and goes to church. But actually, you know, she's lived a rich life. By the age of 40, she's served in the war, you know, she's been a nurse, she's traveled the world. Um, she's found herself after a severe, severe depression and breakdown. And she really is truly like an independent woman and a bis- and as, as Hannah was saying on the last podcast, someone who was writing commercially successfully, one of the most successful authors in the world under her own name um, with a very good contract that she was in control of. And yeah, I mean, I just really admire her for just coming through that horrible period and just somehow, you know, I can't help thinking of that Gloria Gaynor I will survive. You just see her after this horrible crisis thinking, right, shit, what do I need to do? And I have to say, full marks to Archie Christie's brother for helping her out and like literally helping her write the book um, that, that helps her get the money rolling in again, like not taking the side of his brother. That's pretty cool. So she married the wrong brother, evidently. Yeah, she's a bad bitch. So. Um, <laughs> she's awesome. I just think she's so, so cool. Thanks Thank you all for joining one. me. Yeah, thanks for having yeah, me. Well, well, the next one's going to be a mini pod on um, The Big Four, which I've already told you is a terrible book that she hated and wrote under duress. So feel free not to read it and join me for that one next week. Um, although you're more than welcome to. The next one to like properly read for the reread, if you so choose, is Peril at End House which I haven't read since I was 19 and totally didn't remember. But every time you Google, like, what's the best 10 Agatha Christie's, this one gets on the list. So I'm kind of looking forward to revisiting it. And it was published in 1932. So it's kind of, I guess, she's through the difficult time and now she can be settled in her life and be happy and write again. And, you know, the 1930s, like I say, is a really amazing period for her. So, um, yeah. Anyways, I will speak to you all soon. Feel free to join a mini pods or not as the feeling takes you. But otherwise, have an amazing week. You too. And thank you so much. I'm, I'm loving this. Yeah. Are you going to join really? next week for uh, the big four? It's it's only two hundred pages. It's like a little short story compendium, but it is terrible. So <laughs> <laughs> you say it's only two hundred pages, and I'm like, oof. <laughs> yeah, but they're little. It's basically twelve short stories. They each is mm. like. I mean, I started reading, and I was like, oh yeah, this this it's just not good. But it is quite funny because if you guys like Sherlock Holmes, it's where Poirot, Hercule Poirot, who's this like old retired Belgian dude, turns into sort of half Sherlock Holmes, half James Bond. I oh mean, God. there really is like a sort of a deep, oh a deep God, undergrad layer with like, yeah, with, like that- with like smash people. 
and there's a love story and there's like I mean it, it literally I was like did Ian Fleming read this and decide to write James Bond it's that ridiculous but and it's not ridiculous when James Bond is doing it it's just it's ridiculous when it's like Will Poirot who the last time you see him is getting frustrated at growing a garden and a, a cucumber and is throwing it over the fence at his neighbor so <laughs> it was like Oh, but yeah, if you, if you like Bond, maybe give it a go. It's very silly and very fun. I mean, I like Poro, so I'm sold. <laughs> well, this, this is was great. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah, right, speak to you soon, guys. Thank you for having us. Bye. You too. Bye. Bye.